This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarter Bin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which I will select sort of at random. Any book from my comic book collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 48th episode of the Quarterbin Podcast, I'm looking at Micronauts, number 9, from Marvel Comics, cover dated September 1979. But first, a little feedback. New listener and new feedbacker, Jason Marconette, had some kind things to say about the network, and I wanted to welcome him to the listenership. Jason does the Heroes and Hops blog and YouTube channel where he reviews comics and beer at heroesandhops.blogspot.com. Commenting specifically on episode 46, the Doctor Strange and Doctor Doom story, Chris Michael from Mythmaking ETC and the Geek Brunch Retrocast wrote in, I've never read this issue, but it was especially interesting to hear about it because I did read Infinity Gauntlet as a kid, and I reread it last year, and remember seeing reflected in those pages the events of this issue. I'm hoping that as we get closer to a Doctor Strange movie, Marvel will add more of his issues to Marvel Unlimited. The offerings there, at the moment, are a bit meager. Two things I want to comment on from Chris's email. First of all, If I were more of a Marvel fan, Marvel Unlimited would be a total no-brainer for me. I do understand that there are some characters and some stories and some issues, some titles that they're a little light on, but there's enough there, I'm sure, that would keep me busy for a while. Conversely, if DC did a version, it would also be a total no-brainer for me. Also, I think Emily and I have talked about the Doctor Strange movie here. I know that I sent in feedback to David Arrington for the Helix Reviews podcast about it, so actually, now that I think about it, we may not have talked about it here on Relatively Geeky, but I have unusually high hopes for that film, because I dig what the director is about, Scott Derrickson. He does some horror and thrillery types of films, usually with a supernatural or pseudo-spiritual bent. That's the arena he really likes to press into. And I think that that is exactly the sensibility that I want from a Doctor Strange movie. I have not read a lot of Doctor Strange myself, but strangely, I think that movie has real potential from what I can tell about it, you know, this, this many years out. Thanks, Chris. Short email, but I had a lot to say about it. Iowa's Kyle Benning said that he really dug the coverage of the issue, too. Doctor Strange has always been a character I've liked, but not read a whole lot of. My first introduction to the character was in the pages of the Fireside Books' Bring On the Bad Guys collection. From there, I probably would have next encountered him as a member of the Defenders, where he joined some of my favorite Marvel characters, Hulk and Namor and Silver Surfer. So naturally, Strange grew in status, hanging out with characters I like, but I've never been able to track down enough of his solo adventures to determine if I would still enjoy him on his own. And like I just said, that's that's pretty much where I am too, Kyle. Again, my experience with the Doc is that 
is a lot like salt when you're cooking. It adds to the overall taste of a dish, no doubt, but you wouldn't want to eat just it on its own. I, th I think he's more of a supporting character than a lead, at least in the comics. So again, how that works in the movie, I'm really interested. Kyle continues, the Infinity stuff has always been confusing. Have they ever released all those in trades in the proper order? I've reread some tie-ins that reference some of the events, but outside the original Infinity Gauntlet, I've never dipped my toes into any of the follow-up stuff. From the outside looking in, it seems like a daunting task. Again, that's where Marvel Unlimited would come in handy, in theory, if the stories are there, which I don't know, but that would probably be the best place to look, Kyle, I mean, I imagine. Anyway, he says, throw in Doctor Doom, another favorite of mine, and you've got a real winner. Well, I'm very pleased with your comments, Kyle. And Doom is pleased with your comments as well. Kyle also wrote in on the next episode, the final Shadow issue, which, which was just uh, last episode. Kyle, by the way, is the host of King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun, and he's recently added a short-form reader showcase types of episodes to his feed. And he said that this book sounded fun. Wow, this one really amped up the action and suspense for the final chapter. I love the idea of live by the Yakuza, die by the Yakuza. And that shock ending. Now, I know I need to track this series down, and it has jumped to the top of my search list for cons. I would recommend it, assuming, of course, this goes for Kyle and other interested parties, that you can get it for a good price. He also chimed in on what I had said about endings being important for a story. I totally agree with your sentiments about the need for a strong conclusion for an enjoyable story. Ideally, I'd like a strong journey and a strong destination, but a strong conclusion can do wonders, saving a story that meanders a bit in the middle, but a weak conclusion ruins a story for me. You know, I I'm not sure that's the right answer, but that is pretty much where I am too. I also got a message from Mike Staley about that episode. Mike hosts the Invincible Ironcast, Classics Edition, which has just come back from a hiatus. Like I told Chris Michael recently, and as it now applies to Kirk Benning, us short-form solo podcasters need to stick together. Mike said that he was glad that I enjoyed the story as much as I did. I'm a huge fan of Japanese culture, so this story had me right from the start. To be honest, the story kind of reminded me of the video game Ryuga Gotuku, or Yakuza as it's known in America. Fortunately, the brother-like characters who must battle in the end, the Yakuza clan power struggle, and even the dragon motif. Anyway, great job as always. Can't wait for the next episode. Well, that's good, Mike, because this is the next episode. Thanks for all the feedback, fellas. Now it's time for us to get to our issue for this episode. Micronauts 9 at a cover price of 40 cents, meaning I acquired this book at an adequate enough, I suppose, 38% markdown. The cover by Michael Golden shows our band of heroes back to back to back in a small circle, totally surrounded by masses of warriors who all have their weapons drawn. Commander Rand sums up the situation with a very small speech bubble, the only words on the entire cover. Uh-oh. 
The story, titled Home is Where the Heart Is, was scripted by Bill Manlow with art by Michael Golden and Al Milgram. The story starts with our hero shrinking, 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 as the Prometheus Pit seals forever behind them. The Micronauts return to the Microverse. Unfortunately, the Endeavor comes out smack in the middle of an Acroyer battle fleet. Prince Acroyer, the Micron who's part of our team, advises that they have to flee or fight. To my dishonor, my people joined my turncoat brother Shaitan. They serve Karza. Imprisoned by a tractor beam, the Micronauts are towed to Spartak, planet of the Acroyers. But instead of being attacked like they thought they would be by warriors faithful to Prince Shaitan, their welcome is quite different. And all chant, Hail Prince Acroyer! Hail Prince Acroyer! We learn from the Lady Cilicia that the people of Spartak had been thought-washed into betraying the prince to follow Karza and Shaitan, and luckily that brainwashing was lifted three days ago. Cilicia and Acroyer touch palms as a gesture of reconciliation. Princess Mari speaks to Ran the words we are all thinking. Look at them. There's no display of emotion, yet it's obvious they're in love. We learn that the traitorous brother is chained, awaiting execution in the Judgment Tower. But a Croyer can't deal with that now. Punishment of my brother must be deferred until the war is won. Because keeping your enemy alive, as long as possible, never turns out to be a bad idea. Meanwhile, in another quadrant of the Microverse, on the molecular planet Homeworld, Prince Argon, now known as Force Commander, along with super-hot rebel leader Slug, lead the rebellion. And they close in on the body banks, the symbols of Karza's power. Death to Baron Karza, they chant as they advance. Units of large Phobos guns open fire on them, but the chants of shadow priests melt them, maybe by microverse magic. Evil Baron Karza has detected the return of Commander Rand to the Microverse, so he leads his space fleet to Spartak to capture our hero, the champion of the Enigma Force. At his arrival, Karza's spacecrafts immediately attack the planet. A thorium bomb has exploded in the upper atmosphere. The Battle of Spartak has begun. The problem is that Karza's forces need not land to defeat the Acroyers, who are superior in hand-to-hand combat. Cilicia reaches the same conclusion. Acroyer says that they must be made to land, and then makes his way to a crystal chamber beneath the palace. I must defend our world in the sacred manner of kings. Cilicia tries to warn Acroyer against merging with world mind telling him it's only a legend, and no one knows what effects it may have on him. The world mind can only be wielded by a king, and by accident of birth, I am a king. With that declaration, he places himself between two crystal pillars, and Cilicia leaves him to his mysterious work. The Microns, not to be left out of the fray, climb into wing fighters and boost into orbit. A Croyer offered us his world's weaponry. Let's take him up on it, Micronauts. Watching on a monitor, Karza appreciates that they have left the stronghold undefended. Commander Ran sees Karza and tries to shoot him, but the Baron's force field seems unbreakable. In an act of desperation, 
the champion of the Enigma Force, throws his space fighter on it. But one time again, the force field resists. With Kars' army taking advantage of the Acroyer warriors, the Micronauts seem engaged in desperate battle. While within the Acroyer homeworld, deep inside a crystal chamber, King Acroyer calls out, Gods of Spartak, heed the cries of thy children. But there are others who cry out as well. Princess Marionette sees Rand's failed attack on Karza. Bug hears the scream and knows what it means. We can make an educated guess that the little idiot's going after Karza on her own. Outside the chamber, Biotron offers the endeavor to Cilicia to carry refugees. She says there will be no refugees. The world mind has been called together for our entire race. The dead, the living, and the yet to be born. We are one with our world, one with our king. We live, or we die, here on Spartak. And then we get, as a last page, a full splash, although it contains two images, a long shot on the top half of the page that blends into a close-up on the bottom of the page. King Acroyer appears to be in agony. The Legend of the Acroyers In the dim past, a race was driven from its home. The fugitives wandered for millennia as exiles among the stars. The race found a willing planet, but they didn't just occupy it. The people and the planet became partners of a sort. They became strong, the fiercest warriors in the microverse. At one with the cold stone world which had given them a home, a world which would not let them perish. And across the bottom of the page, we get the page's only actual dialogue from a croyer. Three words. I am world mind. Well then, uh, Scott, can you do me a favor? What's that? I've got an episode coming. Let's see. It's called Magnus Remembers uh, Superman Returns, so uh, don't listen to that episode. It, this is all kind of, it's all part of my Superman Begins like miniseries that, I, that I'm uh, going through, or was going through. This is all part of the uh, lead-up to Man of Steel coming out on Blu-ray, right? Mm-hmm. I'm, I've got two little interludes. Uh, the first... Lucy, shut the f*** up! <laughs> Sorry about that, it's the dog. <laughs> Brendan's Magnus Punches Reality at TwoTrueFreaks.com Discussion about comics, movies, and TV shows. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality every Tuesday at TwoTrueFreaks.com No animals were harmed in the making of this promo. I said it when I covered issue 6 of this title, and when I covered issue 7 and issue 8, but Bill Mantlo packs more story into 22 pages than... No, wait, let me count. 18 pages of comic book than any writer today. 
they actually make a note that there is no letter column in this issue. So, is it possible that comics of this era regularly only had 17 pages of story? On the one hand, that seems too short, again, compared to, to 20 or 22. That was a standard when I was most heavily involved in reading new books. But whatever the page count, 17, 18, 22, there is a ton going on in this issue. Multiple storylines, multiple POV characters. It is a gloriously dense read in the way that makes me love comics from this era, the late 70s into the early 90s when things went, well, you know, when they went 90s. So we have Prince slash King Acroyer and the Acroyer people hanging out with our main core of heroes, Ran and Mari and Bug. And even here they split up. And I know what you're thinking, don't split the party, but maybe D&D has not made the cultural impact in the microverse that it has here. So they split up, giving us battle scenes, as well as the events in the Crystal Chamber. And we have some scenes from Karza's POV. And then you have the hot rebel leader Slug, and the deposed Prince Argon, who you may remember from prior issues was a centaur-like creature. By the way, in his current role as Force Commander, he's sort of a big old mech version of a centaur, which, by the way, is pretty awesome. This is a storyline that's gotten two or three pages in each issue I've looked at, but here it's really coming to a head. They are heading straight towards the body banks. So, to me, this issue really has an epic feel to it. We're back in alien space, back out of the Everglades and Steve Coffin and the Astronaut Dad and NASA and Swamp Thing, and I like those issues, but this is more what I was expecting when Micronauts popped up in the quarter bins and then on the randomizer. Stuff not on Earth, or at least not in our realm of Earth. I admit that I was kind of surprised by the setting of those prior Micronauts issues that is being set, like, on Earth. This is the setting that, that I was expecting inner space, but it's basically an outer space adventure story. And that's what we really have here, a space opera that I was expecting. We're in various worlds, locations, characters, storylines. Again, I just think epic is the best word to describe this type of story and storytelling. And because of the truly sci-fi setting here, there's not much going on that dates the story as being from the late 70s, unless you know what the style of comic book writing was, because there are no pop culture references or hairstyles or clothing choices, anything like that. Okay, the ads in the book really date the book, but other than that, the, the content, because of the setting, not tethered to to Earth of the late 70s, really has a bit more of that timeless feel. And I really appreciate the long-form storytelling that's going on here. Based on editor boxes, I see that some of the plot threads that Mantlo is picking up here started as early as issue one. And I don't know how much of a plan he had going into the series or just how hands-off editorial was as he carved out his own corner of Marvel. But however it worked, I'm really impressed. Because, to clarify, I'm not talking about telling a series of six-issue stories. That's not long-term planning. That's usually coming up with an idea and figuring out how to stretch it to six issues. This is telling a single long story with character goals that are consistent, 
with events naturally flowing from prior events, a real sense of cause and effect at work in the world. This is what I look for in novels I read. One of the masters of this, in my opinion, is Terry Goodkind in the world of epic fantasy. And Bill Mantlo is proving to be one of the masters of this in long-form sci-fi comic book storytelling. There is one great visual cue that I, I want to mention from about halfway through the issue when Baron Karza attacks. It's a tall panel that takes up the right half of the bottom two-thirds of the page. It's a very small thing, but in that panel where their ship has just been hit, all three of the speech bubbles are tilted about 45 degrees. It's just in that panel, but it conveys that sense of being hit, of being off-balance, being off-kilter. It's an effective gimmick, but it doesn't come across as gimmicky because it's used just that one time. The restraint is what makes it stand out, and standing out is what makes it work. And as much praise as I've heaped on Mantlo in the the four episodes of Micronauts that I've covered, I wanted to make sure that Michael Golden got his fair share of credit as well, and, and Al Milgram on inks. There are a lot of characters, each one with their own distinctive look, and the art team manages to keep them distinctive. And now that we've moved from our world back full-time into the microverse, that change of pace does not seem to have thrown the artists. Some backgrounds have been simplified, and some of the background characters are indistinct in detail or coloring, but those are quibbles. That's standard comic book stuff. The architecture, the landscapes here in the microverse, were generally interesting and never distracting. And for me, that's a lot of what I look for in art, consistency, storytelling, and a lack of distraction from the writing. And and overall, solid work here. If I'm remembering right, Tom Panarese was generally pleased with Michael Golden's pencils on early issues of The Nom, which he's covering in his podcast, In Country. And this is much earlier in his career here, so his work is probably not as developed here on Micronauts as, as it would later become. The verdict on Micronauts number 9? I love me some sci-fi comic books. And in this era, they didn't come much better than the ones that Bill Manlow wrote. A great continuation from the prior issue, and a great cliffhanger leading into the next one, but also an issue that got things done in and of itself, mostly in terms of plot and action, but also character and relationships. These Micronauts issues have been a revelation and have been consistently enjoyable. A total quarter-bin steal. That wraps up my coverage of Micronauts 9, bringing episode 48 of the Quarterbin podcast to a close. This also brings what I'm thinking of as version 1.0 of the Quarterbin podcast to a close. In the last few episodes, I've purposely wrapped up some ongoing series that we've had going. We wrapped up a three-issue run of Doctor Strange, the four-issue Shadow miniseries. And now we've covered the last of four issues of Micronauts that we've done. Six, seven, eight, and nine. And like I said a few episodes back about Doctor Strange, I don't anticipate revisiting the Microverse, at least for a while. Because I want to mildly shake things up a bit here in version 2.0 of the Quarterbin podcast. So it was a conscious choice to wrap up all of those series 
For one thing, I'm planning on starting a new ongoing series very shortly, but I'll get back to that. So I kind of wanted to clear the decks of ongoing stuff so I can start some new ongoing stuff, start some new series, and maybe handle those differently here in version 2.0 of the podcast. I've talked before that I'm kicking around the idea of doing slightly longer episodes on occasion, maybe covering more than one issue per episode. And that's part of what I'm going to be experimenting with. So at this point, I'm looking at doing that maybe four or five times for episodes numbered in the 50s. But of course, everything is subject to change. I also hope to involve the listeners, or at least those who've liked our Facebook page, to participate in some of the random number generating for selecting books for upcoming episodes as well. So, in episode 49, we will start a new ongoing series, the details of which I'll talk about in that episode, because I think I've done enough inside podcast stuff for one episode. As to what issue we'll cover in that episode, what series we're starting, I have been strongly encouraged to keep that information a secret. Hail Doom. If you have any questions or comments about this issue, the episode, or the podcast, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening. Professor! Professor.